0: Hello, all you angels, demons, humans, and anything else who may be listening. I'm Christiana. And I'm Brie.
1: And welcome to the end times. Welcome to Sauntering Vaguely Podwords, a nice and accurate Good Omens podcast. You are listening to our episode five, but it covers Good Omens season one, episode four, Saturday morning fun times.
0: So before we start, we have a couple disclaimers we want to go over. First of all, the views represented in this show do not necessarily represent the views of our employers or our views. This podcast also does contain spoilers for Season 1, Episode 4. If you've never watched the show and you're just tuning in, we encourage you to watch the show or at least Episode four first. Trust us, it's fantastic.
1: The episode is off to a big start. The lost city or continent, depending on who you ask, of Atlantis is found and accidentally discovered by a cruise ship. In Tadfield, Adam's power is getting stronger and stronger and starts to come into play in a serious and scary way. Two descendants finally meet and, air quotes, get to know one another. And two more horse people are introduced. Back in London, Aziraphale has several more encounters with his boss and the other archangels. And these encounters go from bad to worse. Meanwhile, Crowley is trying to figure out where to run and hide while the whole mess goes down, before he gets an unwelcome visit from Haster and Ligar. Will Aziraphale manage to contact a higher authority, also in air quotes, Mm -hmm. to sort this mess out? Will Crowley cope with his unlucky demonic visit? And how will our heroic International Express Man fare with the last two horse people? Let's jump into the episode and find out. Like we said, we come in on
0: captain vincent finding the lost city or continent of atlantis on a cruise ship and he is doing um like verbally recording a captain's log a la star trek he has come upon a vast expanse of seabed in the night and the atlanteans are starting to come aboard the ship for the passengers who just think this is all great and
1: set up for their amusement and that is not the case this is actually happening it's kind of ironic. I didn't even think we were talking about flood myths that Atlantis shows up in the next episode. That's true. <laughs> it's very Star Trek-esque. I-, I like Star Trek. Do you? I never
0: really got into it. I'll be completely honest. I-, I can't say I've really watched any of the
1: episodes. Yeah. I like Next Generation probably the best. Okay. But the original was fun to watch because of the things that they tried to make look like aliens, like putting <laughs> prosthetics on a dog Oh, god! and the special <laughs> effects. Yes,
0: I I have to remember where this came from, but I read at one point that Neil actually originally did want William Shatner to play the part of Captain Vincent to tie into the whole like Star Trek, Captain's log, cruise ship Marbella, like he wanted it in his voice and to do the, but that's impossible in as William Shatner. And as we can see, it, it was not William Shatner. That played the captain. It's uh, David Morrissey. Yes,
1: yeah, so let's talk about Atlantis a little bit, and this might be its own mini episode.
0: My fun fact is not actually about Atlantis. It's from the con that I went to in March. It was my first ever con. It's Galaxy Con in Richmond, and William Shatner celebrated his ninetieth birthday while I was there. Also, William Shatner looks amazing for ninety. I had no idea that man was ninety years old. He does really. Oh my gosh, he does not look it. He looks like he's maybe in his seventies. And I, they, But he
1: celebrated his 90th birthday at GalaxyCon. Cool. It was so cool. Yeah. We might do a deeper dive on Atlantis, but just kind of the gist, it's a pretty well-known story. It was the first mention that I know of was in, in Plato's work. So we're going mm-hmm. like very far back. Mm-hmm. The works that it's from are part of kind of an allegory on like the, hu- the hubris. So like the big ego pride of nations. Mm-hmm. It's described as this seafaring, very powerful empire. That it ruled over parts of the known world. After they tried to conquer the ancient Athenians, it fell out of favor with the deities, and the deities said, "Hey, you're gonna, you're gonna sink." Oh. A lot of times when we hear like people, ancient aliens were looking at you, talking <laughs> about Atlantis, it's like, "Oh, this high technology and this stuff." Yeah. And I, I don't remember that being. I, I don't think that was part of the original story. Advanced for the time. Right, they might have had really good, you know, in in the myth, they might have had really good seafaring boats. Mm -hmm. They might have had, like, really good armies and stuff. Advanced medicine Mm -hmm. for the time. Unheard of, though. Nothing, like, supernatural. Right. People started trying to throw stuff in later. I don't think this is too much of a spoiler. This is Adam's work. Yes. And it makes sense that in an 11-year-old kid's brain, right, he's going to be thinking of the modern-day myth. Oh, yes, they were you know, in their togas and stuff, but they had all the advanced technology. Right. So this description makes so much sense if you're looking at it from an 11-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. We get the
0: flash of the cover of a magazine, and I think the headline is something like Atlantis found, Mm -hmm. question mark, as we're transferring between the scene where the Atlanteans are boarding the cruise ship and having Mm -hmm. a great time with the passengers and moving to Adam and then them talking about Atlantis.
1: So we're seeing the the power that he has on reality at this point. Yeah, big time. So then we go from one conspiracy to another. Mm -hmm. One spooky thing to another. I am a huge fan of spooky things. Big spooky fan. Don't necessarily mean I believe in all of the spooky things, but I absolutely love them. That's why we shout out a lot of spooky (laughs) podcasts, if we're being honest. Yes. So we go from Atlantis to one of... One of the most terrifying things to me, which is aliens. Mm-hmm. So we go from we go from Atlantis to Aliens and the them, Adam and his gang, are talking about the aliens. Where back in Tadfield, he, Adam, is continuing to evangelize his new his newfound <laughs> knowledge from the magazines Anathema gave him. In this little scene, we get some pretty cool sci-fi references. Would you like to do the Star Wars one? Sure. There, So when they're talking about the aliens,
0: Pepper chimes in and she's like, I don't know if I would be passing around a message of cosmic harmony and goodwill, as Adam is claiming. She says, I would say, this is a laser blaster. Prepare to die,
1: rebel swine. A rebel scum. Or rebel scum. <laughs> yeah. And that is a Star Wars reference. Yes, we love it. Yes. on um, the other one. Brian, I believe, the, says it. He says, Exterminate, which is what the Daleks say in Doctor Who.
0: So Adam continues to chat about the aliens and just like they're real, like the lost city of Atlantis. And his deal is that he's claiming the government hushes everything up, including the discovery of aliens. And they then ask why, you know, Pepper, Wensley and Brian are all looking there. Why would they do that? And he goes, well, they just hush up everything. That's just what they do. Oh, this was the other thing that I found was interesting is as they're talking about this, like I said, Adam is saying about how the aliens come by and they're all they're doing is passing on a message of cosmic harmony and goodwill and peace. And it's great. My curiosity is if he read that in the magazines, if that's what the magazines are telling him, or if he was just reading about aliens being out there in these magazines that Anathema let him borrow and he just decided
1: this is how they would behave in his own, like, 11-year-old mind. I'm trying to think of the nature of these non-existent magazines. It could go either way. It really could, yeah. I, I just think it's fun to think about. He is fairly altruistic for an Antichrist. This is true, yeah. So I could see that being his interpretation of it.
0: Right. Well, when I think about like when you're a young kid, like it's all fun to think about like, oh, Darth Vader and the Daleks and what we saw on TV. But if you really dig into that, especially as a kid, that's scary to think like, about like, oh gosh, they could actually come hurt us. Like, no, I think
1: they're going to be friendly. You know? <laughs> but no, that, I mean, that does make sense, right? Because if you're not looking at it from like, oh, this is cool, there's space, there's good guys, there's bad guys. Laser blasters. Altruistic Antichrist would make a really good band name.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, you know the other one that I came up with? I didn't really come up with. uh, It was posted at work as the words of the day. Irascible werewolf. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) Or eldritch pandemonium. That was the other one they came up with. I was like,
1: I am obsessed. We are indeed in strange times in this part of the story. Bam. Intro. Yep. At a later time, we will probably go more in depth into the the intro credits because we realized that we didn't do that. Yeah. And there is a lot of stuff in there, and a lot of it is actually spoilers, so. It's true. So
0: that would be a fun mini-sode. Yes. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge.
1: All right, so we get through our um, opening credits, and it is Saturday, which is one day till the end, and we learn that apparently Gabriel jogs down on Earth in St. James Park.
0: Very impressive jogging. He's great, great form.
1: You know, you got <laughs> somehow you gotta work to do self-care when you're the supreme the archangel, archangel of
0: heaven, I guess. But yes, we're back in St. James Park and Aziraphale has another counter with the worst boss in the cosmos. He's kind of hanging around in the park. He sees a very strange statue.
1: So this is another Doctor Who nod. Angels kind of come up twice in Doctor Who. Yeah. Um. So one is the weeping angels. Those are like the don't blink. If you blink, they can, they can only move when you're not watching them. And then they send you back in time and they kind of live off of the potential future you would have had Mm -hmm. the other one are called they're called the host right and this was from a christmas special called voyage of the damned they're they're on a space titanic and there's these uh robotic angels and
0: they're kind of like gold colored yeah
1: they do scary things they do we won't we we will not spoil that episode if you haven't seen it
0: As one angel is standing here looking at this other angel, and he's not so sure he likes this interpretation, Um, or at least that's, I think, what it says in the script book is Aziraphale's not so sure of what he thinks of this statue. Gabriel jogs past, and Aziraphale sees him and goes, oh, and he very badly tries to keep up with him and keep
1: pace with him. He tries hard. I like to run, too, but it's...
0: I, I need to do more cardio. Running is not my thing. So he's trying to convince Gabriel one more time that the world could be saved and that there doesn't have to be a war. He's trying really, really
1: desperately to convince Gabriel of this. And he's just not, Gabriel is just not having it. He has such, like, a no, this war has to happen at all costs attitude. Mm -hmm. He not only disagrees with Aziraphale, he, like, isn't even open to seeing his side. No. It's a very much of, well, there has to be a war. Like, we have to, we have to have a war so we can win it, like, There's, it's very much he is kind of looking in tunnel vision.
0: Yeah. It's a little scary. I mean,
1: a lot scary, actually.
0: So uh, Gabriel continues and he tells Zero Fail to wrap up everything that he needs to do on Earth, report back to active service. And then we get this lovely comment that has made its rounds again and again and again through the fandom. Lose the gut.
1: Which is so rude.
0: That's, yeah.
1: (sighs) Yeah. there's so much pressure on people no matter what their gender or what their
0: and body it, type is yeah you can't have a single ounce of fat on you oh
1: and, and it's, it's like, <laughs> it, it it is a very big issue in today's world mm-hmm. we won't go into that too far but it's just it's a it's a really un,
0: unnecessary comment that he makes and he kind of like jokingly like Pokes a zero fail in the stomach. He's like, "You're a lean, mean fighting machine. Come on now." It's like,
1: that's gross. That's really gross. That is, but it's something that does happen in today's world. That's the it thing. Does. And this has to be intentional. Oh yeah. They they called it out in a way that didn't make it like
0: it was um, untastefully. Yes. It, yeah. It wasn't, it, like, it wasn't a
1: rant. It wasn't a soapbox. And it I wasn't guess. like the butt of a joke either. It was more like, "Oh, this is." It was really cringy.
0: Yeah. And, and I would just like to throw this in there too. And I am not passing judgment whatsoever here. I just like to make that clear. I really don't understand why that comment was made. I don't think Aziraphale is a particularly big dude. He he looks a little bit um poofy because he's wearing literally like twenty layers, twenty layers of Victorian garment. But I just don't. I'm like he's he's really. And again, I'm not passing judgment. For any fanfic writers out there, for any fan artists, anything you portray these characters how you want to see them, I am not judging, and I'm sure Neil would approve as well. So I'm not saying that at all. It just is like it's just strange to me. I guess is what I'm trying to get here.
1: I'm trying to think what the description was in the book. Is he really described that much in the? Book? The only thing I can think of is. The, the when people first see Aziraphale, they think three things. That he's intelligent, <laughs> that he's British, and that he's gayer than a tree full of monkeys on... Well, nitrous <laughs> oxide.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think of the, and he's got nice hands. He has very manicured nice hands.
1: <laughs> that's, that's a very interesting thing to bring up, but... Yeah, it, I, it sticks in my brain. I think a lot of people could probably relate to what he was going through, though. Yeah. Because yeah. whether you are healthy size, whether you are you know, a bigger person, or even if you're smaller, you get comments. And
0: yeah, it doesn't matter what size you are. People are
1: rude and not thoughtful of how their comments can affect other people. Yeah. So let's, you know, move on past this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Do you think this happens directly after the bandstand? I had not thought about
0: that before you wrote that comment in our notes. And I'm like, it very well could have been, but it's a really sad thought. We did some research. If, If it is directly after that, Phil is remarkably
1: composed. I I would almost have to guess that he, he has I mean we've seen how his meetings with his bosses go and he's That's true. It seems like he very much is a master of like gotta compartmentalize. Yeah, stuff it down and keep keep chugging. Poor Azir Phil. We love you.
0: There was, I've mentioned a Claire Anderson article that I read that was the costumer for Good Home in season one. And she noted when she was doing Gabriel, she was trying to make him look very, I mean, he's already like a handsome guy. So she was really trying to accentuate all of his features. Yeah, John Hamm. Yes, John Hamm. She made his running suit out of cashmere, which is probably incredibly soft, but I feel like he'd also be extremely hot.
1: We're cutting scenes again, and we are back with our hero, the International Express Man. He's in his bedroom, looking like he's getting ready for work. Um, and he's talking to his wife, who is still waking up, we assume.
0: Yeah, she's like snuggled
1: up in yeah. bed. And she's like, come back to bed. And he claims he can't because he's got deliveries to make. She's confused because he's being asked to deliver something on a Saturday morning. She's more confused by that than the fact that he has to go to like the Middle East and then the United <laughs> States. But we're not going to dwell on that.
0: I mean, he is the international
1: expressman. <laughs> That's true. And then she asks who the, the who the deliveries are for. And he doesn't know anything besides it's important because the order for schedule 6,000 years ago.
0: She's like, they were joking. And he's like, no, love, I saw the paperwork. And I have to tell you, I love these two. They are adorable together. So he kind of is like, he's putting on his hat and he's like, I just don't question things. Ours is not to reason why, ours is to deliver packages. His wife, she gets a little spicy <laughs> because she kind of leans forward in bed and, like, reaches out her fingers to him. She goes, I love you, tiger. <laughs> I can't even say it. And else. we learn their names, too. Yes. He goes, I love you, Maud," And he, like, blows her a little kiss. And she catches it. And he... Just gives her this look like, oh, you cheeky thing. They are so cute. You only get this, like, what is it? Maybe a two minute clip. Oh, it's
1: very small. Yeah, but it's very cute. <laughs> I love them. I I still really want to know his background. Like, who is this person? Oh, I
0: have a headcanon on him, by the way.
1: I will share this
0: um, a little bit later. Oh, also, uh, I want to note that they are an interracial couple, which I think is really cool. And I'm sure, again, Neil did that on purpose, but it's just a neat thing. So we go from Leslie and Maud being
1: adorable together.
0: Yes. And we go back to heaven and Michael is getting very suspicious of Aziraphale. She's gone back through the Earth observation files and found photos of Aziraphale and Crowley together during various points in history. So she sees them on a bench together. Uh, I think one of them is a picture standing near each other at the globe.
1: Yeah, there's one of them. Yeah, like 1860s, something like that. We have pretty well identified that the upper management of heaven are jerks. Yes. I really have this idea that I think Michael is more of a jerk than Gabriel. Mm -hmm. She's a lot sneakier about it. Mm -hmm. Gabriel's kind of pretty open he's like he's a jerk but he's an upfront jerk
0: yeah I mean he sees the pictures of the two of them together and he like I I again this is something that you had brought up in our notes and I was like you know you're kind of right watching this back through because he sees the pictures of the two of them together and he's like I'm sure there's a perfectly reasonable explanation a perfectly innocent explanation is actually the word he used yeah I had always when I first watched through this show just looked at it as like, oh, he's just putting on a front. Like he doesn't actually believe this. He just feels like you know he has to
1: be that. But I don't know. I, it. I mean, it, it's acting, right? Yeah. But it. He seems generally like, oh, you know, there there has to be some kind of explanation. Maybe there's something going on. Like he he at this point he sees a zero fail as incompetent, but not a traitor.
0: Yes. Yeah. And and as we've already kind of gotten from that really unnecessary scene in St James Park, he's like, Oh, he's just kinda of soft,
1: you know, he's this just soft big teddy bear. He's harmless. And Michael is sneakier, but I also think that she is more faced in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Not that Azira Fail is a traitor, but she is Seeing things that Gabriel is not. Yeah. And she's very, very, very strict by the book. Do not stray yeah. from the path. So then we see, well, to a point, mm-hmm. we, we see Michael walking away and then she's pulling out a phone and she's talking to someone. So she is by the book for, I'd say, her underlings. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see where you're, I see where you where you're go with that. Because she's also not, Aziraphale is not the only one in communication with the opposition. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems like her and her contact are much more, like, contacts than they are.
0: Yeah, they're a little more familiar than just...
1: Well, they're not They're not close, like Aziraphale and Crowley are.
0: No, not close, but... They're familiar. Yes. Even when, when she introduces herself on the phone, she doesn't say, Oh, hey, it's me, Michael. She literally just says, It's me.
1: It's it's Liger, correct? Yes, that's what she's talking to. They're not talking like people that are like not well affiliated. They they're talking yeah. like they've talked before. And I also wonder like how long that's been going on. But yes, we do find out in the end, you know,
0: Michael gets off the phone and we flashed very very quickly to a scene in hell where Liger is hanging up a phone and he just goes crowly crowly
1: crowly. And she, and uh, Michael also goes, "Of course you can trust me. I'm an angel." The way the intonation
0: she says it, oh my gosh.
1: And speaking of the devil, well, Crowley, anyways, demon, mm. he's trying to pick a destination. This is a really cool scene. If you, I mean, he's not in a good headspace, but the way this scene is put together, yeah. So we're in his flat, and he's trying to decide where to run to before everything hits the fan. So we very much see that, like, his fight or flight is flight. Yeah. Very quickly. Yeah, very yeah, hard to hear. Yep. And he's so into the astronomy stuff, which he knows it well because he helped make the stars. He, mm-hmm. does he say that? And yeah, he says that in the scene. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. like I created some of these. There's another Doctor Who Easter egg. We get, so he, there's this big book of astronomy and all of the different pages with the different star systems and planets come up mm-hmm. and they're kind of very fast flitting past the, the camera and we get Gallifrey, which is the home world of the Time Lords. Yeah. I
0: love all the Doctor Who Easter eggs in this. It's so cool, and
1: I mean, it makes sense. We have David Tennant was like the, the Doctor. Neil Ga- Neil Gaiman wrote a couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. Even Michael Sheen was in Doctor Who.
0: That's what I I thought. I don't remember where was, he was. It at, was in but...
1: that Smith episode. I'm pretty oh, sure. And no, that in that one, it happens right. And Rory, who was one of the companions at that point, goes, mm-hmm. "Did you wish really, really hard?"
0: <laughs> cool. Moving on from uh, Doctor Who Easter eggs in yeah. Gallifrey.
1: We also get a little bit of background on why Crowley fell so it wasn't for some monstrous deed it wasn't for like outright declaring war in heaven mm-hmm. it was because he asked questions it's interesting because there is such a taboo about asking questions in so many different belief systems whether that is spiritual religious family settings mm-hmm. political ideologies it's such a taboo thing it really stunts growth. If we don't ask questions, mm-hmm. nothing ever changes, which I mean, kind of as a power play, right? Yeah. Things if someone was, If someone wants things to stay status,
0: it's just easier to not have questions asked of the person in power because then they might have to justify what they're doing, whatever they're doing. And
1: that's not always as easy as people would like to think it is. No. I'm a big proponent of question everything. I think that is probably one of the biggest reasons why like even when I was reading the novel, mm-hmm. I like Azira Fail too. Yeah. But I've always very much been more drawn to Crowley. I don't know what that says. That's okay. I, I joke that he's my spirit animal, which is funny. He's great. We love him. But it's I think that's one of you know, I also try to be cool and fail miserably. <laughs> Never. No. Your time.
0: You're the coolest. All the time. So this this scene is like Brie already said, it's just a really neat scene in the way that it's filmed and it's sad Crowley is just as he's looking for a place to run to he's mourning his loss of being an angel of falling you know in saying kind of dramatically drapes himself over his throne and looks up into I guess in this case it, it's his flat so it'd be the ceiling But looks as upward. only David Tennant can
1: do yes
0: as only David Tennant can do he's I only ever ask questions and he starts saying God show me a great plan and it's it's like a we'll see this echoed a little bit later in this episode and I'll explain more to that when we get there but it's it's almost like a child just begging their parent for help
1: or for an answer
0: or for an answer any kind of answer and then they get nothing in return
1: yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. It's like when a parent just kind of shuts a child down, mm-hmm. instead of saying, well, I'm not sure right now, but let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's just radio silence. And he's just, he's like, such an inquisitive being. Yeah. he's like, I'm not trying to hurt anyone. I'm trying to understand. And you're just not giving me. And there's a line that, so part of this like little monologue is about him. And then he kind of turns about humanity because as we've mentioned in the last episode, mm-hmm. He does really like humanity. Like, he does care, I think, about the, the planet. And, yeah. He's like, you know, you said you would test them, but you shouldn't test them to destruction.
0: Right. And I
1: think that's true of anyone. <laughs> you notice as you watch the scene, the more stressed he looks, the less human. Like, he's, yeah. he's still one of the more humanoid demons, but he's kind of losing control. Almost like a glamour. Like, uh, yeah. if you're like familiar with like, fairy myth and that kind of stuff, like, they make themselves look human Mm -hmm. and it's slipping you can see the goldish scaliness coming through
0: yeah and he's his eyes go full yellow so we've talked before about uh the contacts that david Tennant wore and they did a little bit of cgi work in there as well i'm sure but they start off as if you think about a human eye the pupil surrounded by the iris is set Against the white sclera, and it's that round circle pupil and iris that has like the, the split pupil and then the circle iris around it expands to cover the whole eye. David Tennant already has like pretty sharp high cheekbones, but they, they get make it sharp, super
1: defined. But yeah, he definitely stops looking like a normal human. Mm-hmm. He looks like pallid. He does. He looks very like otherworldly. Still looks human, but just not quite. Yeah. We go from him figuring out what he's going to do, back to our hero who drives an International Express delivery truck.
0: Our man, Leslie, he is driving his van and he pulls off to the side of this kind of like pretty back road, it looks like. It's in the woods. He climbs out of his truck. He gets a package out of the back and he starts to go walk across the road and nearly gets clobbered by a lorry.
1: Can we explain what a lorry is to Americans like us? Uh, I mean, yeah.
0: yeah. It's like a a big delivery truck. So, I don't I don't know if they consider lorries like 18-wheelers like semi like semi trucks, but it's a big like think like a UPS
1: truck or something like that. And he's not that unnerved by this. He's, really... more, he's more he's irritated. I I really want to spin-off series on him he just goes bloody lorries shouldn't be allowed even like a um like a graphic novel like Sandman about him
0: <gasps> yes he's walking towards a lone figure uh, sitting by a very nasty creek and we hear God narrating that this creek used to be beautiful this creek that is now just disgusting has like an oil slick covering the top of it. There's trash everywhere. God explains to us that it used to be full of fishermen and young couples getting all quote unquote lovey-dovey in the Sussex sunset.
1: And Leslie and Maud were some of those couples <laughs> that would go there. We won't go into detail on that. <laughs> I love
0: them so much. They deserve the world. So Leslie approaches the figure that's sitting on the bench beside this creek to hand off his package. And we find that this person seems uh, a little strange. Uh, Leslie's pretty put off. He's unnerved. He's very unnerved in a way that he hasn't been with the other two strange people that he's delivered to.
1: They almost look more human, though. Which, so, when you think of the four horsemen, horse people of the apocalypse, mm-hmm. that could be a whole yeah. Um there's one slight alteration in this world. Traditionally, it is war, famine, pestilence has retired in this universe. Mm -hmm. We don't know why. They have been replaced by pollution. I mean, I may be reading too far into this, but I also wonder if part of the reason why pollution doesn't blend in as well is because they're newer. Oh, that's true. And there's also...
0: A kind of neat he- idea here. We've talked about an ongoing theme in this series is that not everything is as it seems. You would think, oh, pollution, dark, oily, nasty, disgusting. They're they're portrayed in all white clothing. With white hair, too, I think. With white hair and white contacts. Or I'm um, I don't know for certain if these are contacts or not. I think I jumped the gun there a little bit, but their eyes um, are white. Their eyes are white, yes.
1: So Pollution is given a crown, mm-hmm. correct? And then Leslie walks back to the truck. We see him climb in it. He pulls a note out of his pocket, then slowly folds it and puts it back in his pocket.
0: This is, he has this just resigned look on his face.
1: Hello, Bree here. In this next section, we will be briefly discussing a death caused by being struck by a moving vehicle. If this is something that is triggering for you or something you are not in a mental space to hear about, please feel free to hit the forward button a couple of times. We don't go into great detail on this particular part, but we do have some discussion about the character of death and death in general. You see him pull out, out of maybe the
0: glove compartment in his van, a piece of paper and a pencil and he scrolls this little note and he puts it in the dashboard and you get a close-up of it and it just, all it says is, I love
1: you, Maud." He's very committed to his job. Yes. Which makes me wonder if he knows more than we think he does. Mm-hmm. So he climbs out of his truck and then he unfortunately does meet another Lori. And at first he thinks that he managed to not get hit, but then we meet our final horse person, which is Death. On this particular rewatch of the series, I have found that I really like Leslie, and I've also found that I, like, death is probably my favorite horse person.
0: Yeah. I I honestly, even though he's death, I feel as though he's the
1: least malicious of all of them. He is, because he's the only one that's really not a human-made thing. Mm-hmm. All the other ones are human-made. Right. Oh, I mean, war is, pollution, pestilence, yes and no, like... Famine and pestilence will happen whether humans are there or not. Mm -hmm. Disease and...
0: But famine can definitely be caused by humans and by human greed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pestilence can be spread. I mean, there's... Yeah. Trigger warning here. There are so many stories we hear of even, like, early settlers
1: coming to America. German warfare has been a thing for thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. And pestilence would be such a scary idea. I mean, it still is. Mm-hmm. Especially in ancient times because they didn't have antibiotics. Right.
0: They didn't even know it was necessary to wash your hands. I was say, yeah. You know.
1: Death is probably the horse person I like the most. He's very calm and soothing. Mm-hmm. And I am currently reading some of the Discworld novels and yeah, death reminds me much more in Good Omens. Death reminds me much more I'm only almost done with the color of magic so like this opinion could change. Mm -hmm. Reminds me more of that death than it does of death in Sandman, which Neil has said it's not the same entity.
0: Terry Pratchett wrote Discworld Discworld by himself. Okay. I think death has a very soothing manner, but it's also terrifying. He's also terrifying at the same time. So Leslie kind of sees himself laying on the ground after his happening with the lorry and he looks up at death and this is not it's not overly gory they don't spend a lot of time on it but he looks up at death and he goes i have a message for you it's not a package it's a message and the message is
1: come and see which i feel like is referenced from something it might be biblical but i honestly don't know
0: yeah i
1: it's ringing a bell
0: yeah It, it sounds like it has more meaning
1: I mean, death kind of gives, because, you know, Leslie is upset about being dead, I think, pretty understandably. I mean, it's pretty, And death does try to comfort him, and he, it's not incredibly comforting, but I could see from his perspective, this is a very soothing thing. Yeah. Think of it as leaving early to avoid the rush.
0: Right. Which, again, yes, soothing, but also terrifying, depending on which side of it you... You look at, it's just, he's a great, he does a great job of doing both at once. Who,
1: is it Brian Cox, the one that voices death? It is, it is Brian Cox. Mm. Death is introduced, and then we get the, a title kind of screen saying death on it, and I don't know why, but that title screen gives me, like, chills, and I have chills. I yeah. can't even picture it in my head. It's... It gives me chills, and it, like... It really... It it's they do it in a way that it's like
0: this is finally happening. All of the horse people are introduced here. It is, and yeah, you're right. It is very chilling. So I came up with this the other night as I was watching uh, episode four to do my notes for it, and I think so through the show for Leslie, our international express guy, our hero, our hero. It seems pretty clear. That he's human. Or so we believe. But as we've said a bunch of times now, he's insanely calm about all these bizarre situations he gets into and the strange behaviors of the entities that he's delivering these packages to. Because they they don't act normal. I think war might be the most normal out of all of them, surprisingly. I would
1: say so. She's just
0: like, oh yeah, thanks, here's she the package.
1: probably has the most direct contact with humans,
0: though. Yeah. That's true. But, I mean, even even with war, even though she was the most normal entity he's delivering to, he walked into a situation where people were openly pointing guns at each other and it looked like they were all about to blow each other away. And he wandered out whistling. Like, he's insanely chill.
1: Maybe he's Jesus.
0: Maybe he is. I think that somehow he is in the know of all this supernatural stuff. I don't know that I am 100% believing that he's supernatural himself. I think he could very well just be a human, but like maybe he was somehow told about all this goings on by a higher power. He knows that his job is to essentially be a cog in all these miraculous workings um, maybe even at some point he does know the job will be his end, and that's why he's almost just resigned to the fact that he's going to die. Like we see in the truck, he pulls that note out of his pocket and he reads it, and he's sad. He doesn't try to run. He doesn't try to get away from it. He just writes a note to his a note to his wife to make sure she knows. Like I he yeah she knows that I love you, and he goes and meets his fate, and he does it bravely, doesn't flinch
1: doesn't ask questions. Yeah,
0: exactly. So somehow maybe in the end, because he knows that this is just his job, he maybe hasn't been told how everything's going to be okay, but he knows that eventually it will be. It's a good allegory for Faith. Yeah, that's true. I think I can say for both of us that we think he's definitely more than just a random human at a random delivery company that is just weirdly chill and doesn't ask too many questions.
1: Speaking of asking many questions, (laughs) we are going to return to Adam, where he is continuing to provide the them with all of his infinite wisdom from the magazines, the new Aquarius. It's in magazines. It can't be made. (laughs) So we are in Jasmine Cottage, and Adam is getting some more magazines from Anathema. She invites the kids in, and we hear a rather strange radio broadcast going on in the background. Something about terrorists stealing a running nuclear reactor. It's something like that.
0: Could it be terrorist
1: activity? Who knows? I'm pretty sure that broadcast was in the book as well.
0: Yes, I think honestly, I think it was funnier in the book. And we have this interaction between the other
1: them, the yeah. other the other them's,
0: the other them's, and <laughs>
1: Anathema, Wensleydale, and yeah. no Brian and um, Pepper are like, you're a witch.
0: She offers them candy and she's all excited because she's like, it's chocolate. And they shut her down. It's like, oof. But Lindsay Dale's like, I take chocolate from witches and the others follow suit. He's so sweet. He's a
1: pure little bean. He is. We go from that scene to a kind of funny one where Newt is given the tools of the witchfinder trade. Yes.
0: He has come to Shadwell's apartment uh to get kitted out for his grand adventure to Tadfield.
1: And somehow Shadwell's flat looks worse than it did before.
0: <laughs> that flat is nasty.
1: And Shadwell continues to kind of be his very sketchy but proud of his Witchfinder army self. He's like a proud dad. He is. And here's some of the tools. <laughs> These sound like the um Harry Potter. The Horcruxes. <laughs> yes. Uh, sorry. <laughs> or the um the Deathly Hallows. Yes. Anyways. So we have the pendulum of discovery. We need sound effects. Dun dun dun. Thumbscrews. <coughs> Fire lighters. I'm not actually prepared to burn anyone. That's a that's a direct quote from Newt. <laughs> a bell. Bing. A book. Uh read, read, read. A candle. Whoosh. And a pin. Poke, poke. So and then we also get Exorcism 101 with Shadwell. You need to get the bell. Ring the bell. Light the candle. And read the book. Yes. That's how you do an exorcism. In case anyone needs to know. Don't listen don't listen to the Vatican, the Catholic Church. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they don't know what they're talking about. He actually says that in the book, he too. Does actually, yeah.
0: I, is that in the show too that they talk about shouldn't the churches be I think in that's, charge of this? I think so. I
1: think that's when um Newt first meets Shadwell.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: Shadwell's eyes get so big. He's talking
0: about all this and saying, No one ever thought it would be easy. And I mean, his, it's just kind of comical. He gets, his eyes just get huge when he's talking about anything. And it's
1: just a fun little thing. And Nude is trying to like actually read the book. And Shadwell is like, There'll be no time for light reading when you're under demonic attack, laddie. And then things, you thought things were weird, right? Hold on to your hats. <laughs> We
0: flash away from the scene in the apartment. We get kind of a cool transition. So I'm going to try to describe this with the narration. We see Newt driving in his car and the camera, you know, presumably driving to Tadfield. And the camera kind of pulls out, zooms out to see a profile view of the car driving on the road. And then you can also see underneath the road. So like in the earth, but in the earth a little tunnel that Newt is driving over top of. And as all of this is happening, we hear God narrating that the world is changing due to Adam's influence as his antichrist powers are growing stronger. Once we see that he, Newt, is driving over top of this tunnel, we jump into the tunnel and we meet two Tibetans who are really, really not sure what they're doing or why. One, they're talking, they're they're drinking tea together. One of them says, I don't know how I got here. Like, I ran a radio repair shop and then suddenly showed up digging a tunnel dressed like this. And the other one was selling tickets somewhere. And I, I think they meant train tickets. All of a sudden stop what they're doing. And the one goes, oh, tea breaks over. And she passes her partner, friend, acquaintance a shovel. And you realize they're just digging random tunnels.
1: And so we go out of the tunnel and we go back to Newt, who is being pulled over by a spaceship. (laughs) And the aliens have a conversation with Newt about the sorry state of the planet. The ice caps were too low, too small for a planet of that size. Yes. But they pass on a message of peace, cosmic harmony, and such like. Then they ask... No, do you know why we were told to give you this message? He it's I love this. It's kind of a, a
0: kind of a burn. He kinda is stuttering through this entire conversation, just completely like this isn't happening. Understandably, yeah, seriously. When the alien looks at him and goes, Do you understand do you know why we've been asked to give you this message, sir? He kind of stutters an explanation, like, oh, well, uh, that man harnessed the atom. Uh, the Like, atom, as in, like, particles, not atom, <laughs> as in Adam Young. The alien kind of gently cuts him
1: off and just goes, yeah, neither have we. <laughs> it's like, oh. He pulls over and talks to Shadwell. And there's a phone booth, right? <laughs> yeah. And there's just, he's like, I got put over by aliens. And Shadwell's like, did you count their nipples? And there's some other stuff. And he's like, you're a witch finder, not an alien hunter. And to clarify, that's how he identifies witches: is you gotta count their nipples. So and I'm gonna pause us here because I never tell you where I was when I read that section, when I read that part of the book the first time.
0: Uh, no, I don't think so.
1: My husband plays like Magic the Gathering, or he used he used to actually go to tournaments, like yeah, pre COVID. Mm-hmm. And him and his friend were playing, and I, I was getting bored of watching them, so I went in the car mm-hmm. and I'm reading this book, and I'm like, what the heck? Like <laughs> I remember reading a section and being like. Whatever. Just having to put the book down I, for a minute. Like, I, I literally uh, did. I was like,
0: "What, what? is going on?" <laughs> that that sure was written in there, wasn't it? <laughs> so we're uh, whales.
1: Yeah, we're back to whales. Not the country, the animal. The them are walking back through town, discussing all of their newfound knowledge. And Wednesday Dale brings up, "We ought to save the whales," and it's just a thing. And I don't, I like. It's a running joke. Yeah, but it's never whole, quite explained that I can understand. No. They're pretty cool, though. Yeah. But We gotta save them because they do all kinds of fun things.
0: They're just swimming and eating things and singing as Pepper states. It's True. It's very true. They are
1: very cool. They're very cool. Then we flash from this conversation to a view from a Japanese boat on a very choppy, stormy sea. Mm-hmm. And God informs us that this is not a whaling ship. It's a research ship researching how many whales it can can catch in a week.
0: I, okay. The way that boat is rocking and rolling on that choppy sea. No. (laughs) That's all I have to say about that. To clarify, I actually really like the ocean when I can stand on the beach and listen to the waves and I can beach comb. But I have a wee poem that I have written about being in deep water on a submarine this is my this is my poem all right you will not catch me on a boat you will not catch me in a moat you might no you definitely will not catch me in a sub you might not even catch me in a tub
1: that's it that's my poem whales whales oh so yeah that that scene is like nauseating almost yeah and that was a wonderful poem thank you for sharing thank you (laughs) <laughs> and as it turns out, the water is so choppy and like perfect stormy mm-hmm. because we have released the Kraken. <laughs> I get I, I get such um, Cthulhu vibes. Yes. Have you ever listened or read that one? I have not. I know of Cthulhu. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm like quizzing you on your literary knowledge That's in this okay. podcast. So <laughs> do you know um, Miss and Legends podcast? hmm He did for a while- um another podcast he would just do like retellings of like famous literary oh, called? um but he, to look it up. he did um the call of cthulhu was one of them he did a oh. bunch of my favorite quote that i i forgot about until this moment mm-hmm. and a million sushi dinners cry out for vengeance as the kraken rises from the deep and catches this whaling ship in its tentacles, and it is God saying that, by the way, yes. So your your quote of the week is from God, and we also kind of flash back to the young household
0: <laughs> as this is happening with the boat and um, the kraken rising out of the sea, and we realize we're back in the young household, and we realize this is being reported on on the news. And the news reporter says something along the lines of, "Like people of the internet have been referring to this weird sea beast as the Kraken. And Deirdre is sitting there folding laundry. And she just goes, what? <laughs> that's <laughs> just that's
1: a pretty valid reaction. Yeah. So we are going back to hell.
0: So we, we do. We swing down to hell for a short scene. And we find Liger pushing through a hallway to go talk to Haster. It is so... Crowded and gross, Ugh. and I'm pretty sure there's
1: a demon that's catching water leaking from the ceiling. Yeah, like, could you imagine? Like, there has to be a punishment. Like, what did he do to mess up that badly that he is catching water from the ceiling?
0: Yeah, in in hell. Oh, that water is probably gross.
1: And so, like, it's not even a human spirit. It's like this demon must have made their their boss angry or something. That's
0: yeah, that's true. So these two. Haster and Liger are having a conversation about Crowley and how they're going to get him because this is right after Liger has hung up the phone with Michael or at some point after he has hung up with Michael and he's trying to explain to Haster, I've been thinking about Crowley, something's not right with him. Haster is having a hard time hearing anything Liger is saying because he is also stuck standing there holding a bucket, waiting for maintenance to come fix a pipe. As this nasty goop drips into the... It's not even water, it doesn't look like. It just looks like sludge. Yeah, uh, we get a lot of uh, neat animal aspects in this scene. Liger, we talked way back in our first episode about the contacts that these two are wearing. And he has these bronzish, almost colored contacts. But he also has a lizard on his head. As one does. Is, as one does. That's just clinging to his hair like a hat. And it's the same color as his eyes. And I would need to look closer at his eyes. But I'm guessing they probably made the pupils similar with the contacts as they would a lizard. And the frog is there. I'm sorry. There is a frog sitting on Aster's head or a toad. Perhaps it's a toad. Just And he's got his little feet down stuck to Aster's, not really his cheeks, but like where his sideburns would come down. So, like, right in front of his ears, he's just clinging there. Temples?
1: Temples, yeah. We're going from demons to witches. So, Anathema is about to meet her man. We are in Tadfield, and Anathema has a message on her phone. She has prophecy alerts on her phone. Yeah, she's prepared. She is prepared.
0: We see a quick flash of Newt driving past the Them who are walking down the side of a lovely country road, when suddenly... Two Tibetans poke their heads out of a hole in the middle of the street and crash. Newt is having a weird day first. <laughs> He's having a rough time. And I just like to say here, we don't see the car crash, we just hear the noise of it. We see him like go to try to swerve the wheel, but then it goes back to the them, and we hear the noise of the car uh crashing, and dog starts barking and goes running like a lassie. <laughs> What's the source of this crap? They run over, they see, and the car is actually flipped over. And they run over, they get Newt out, which is like, good on them. Because there's a lot of people that'll just stand there and go, uh, you know, they get the bystander effect. They don't do anything. All all four of these kids are like, no, we're going to help this guy. And they dig him out of the car. They do
1: great. And they, they get him out and then he passes out at the sight of his own blood because his <laughs> nose is bleeding, which some people are very sensitive to blood. I think David Tennant might actually Maybe. be but the
0: Tibetans are not about this nonsense. They, we see that them are kind of standing around Newt as he's passed out on the ground, like, oh no, what do we do to win now? And Adam kind of glances over down the road and sees these two little Tibetans still kind of poking their head out of the hole. They see him looking at them and they go, oh, and pop down real quick. They're not about this. They're they like, know. we don't even want to be here.
1: We go from a picturesque countryside in England to Megiddo. We see several of the generic demons. They look exactly the same. They're often called either the Eric demons, or um, I've heard them called disposable demons, which makes <laughs> me sad. I know.
0: But Eric is short for generic. I love the makeup on these guys. Yes, They're really the eyelashes. mean. eyelashes. Yeah, because they have um, eyelash. He... <laughs> They almost look like they're doing makeup that could be like at a punk concert, but they have, their hair is kind of spiked up into two, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, bunny ears, and then they have uh, eyelash extensions on that are really long, but instead of on the top of the eyeball, it's on the bottom, so they come out over their cheeks. It looks like spiders a little bit.
1: They wouldn't be out of place in like a first album panning at the disco music video.
0: Yeah, they really wouldn't be. They They have, like, the dark eyeshadow on. They have an eyeliner journey happening. It's great.
1: They they could be in the I Write Sins, Not Tragedies video. (laughs) Yes. There you go, Paul. And that's a high compliment coming from us. Yes. Oh, they are explaining to Haster, who must have finally fixed that leaky pipe situation, (laughs) how Armageddon will begin. Sadly, for the Eric demons, it takes three of them to get all the way through the explanation because Haster keeps not appreciating their sense of humor
0: yeah poor poor eric they come up the first eric well we will call him comes up one eric one comes up and is trying to explain how like the horsemen will ride over the plains to them and i'll give you this one because
1: oh it's dark force one yeah that's what he wants to call his team yes the team of the team team and they come over and they kind of start the whole the whole shebang the whole avocado off
0: yes they he's kind of describing to Haster Lord Haster where all the different sites are so he's like oh yeah the uh, archaeological dig site because this is the archaeological ruins of like an Assyrian king where this is happening he's like yeah it's over there and the avocado fields are that way and he goes you Haster says you grow avocados here and why uh, not why not
1: and Eric tells a little joke And it it almost feels like the Eric demons look up to Crowley because they have like they have similar style and the hair is not quite. Yes, yeah. We also see that Haster is really trying to look human. He's trying. He did not understand the assignment. No, he
0: he got rid of the frog on his head at least. But I did notice. I have not noticed this until this rewatch. He has an imprint of a a frog foot on his his left, yeah, left temple, which I thought was just kind of a neat nod. Like Crowley has a snake tattoo, but Haster has the little frog foot. And
1: we also learn about the creation of the selfie. Yes, uh, they're
0: trying to explain the the second Eric because Haster took out the first Eric after he told a joke Haster didn't like uh i oh i would also like to throw in there during that little scene his monologue is extremely creepy it's ugh, it's frightening uh but anyway the second eric comes up and he goes oh the uh the the boy and his parents the antichrist or who they I think is the antichrist. antichrist yeah and his parents are going to show up for a photo op and and haster is like what's that is that another joke and this poor little Eric has just watched his other friend get eviscerated because he told a joke and he's like, no, 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 it's not a joke. Uh, it's a thing. It's real. It's a thing. It's real. Yeah.
1: And he's like, it's, you know, it's like a it's like a um, selfie. The demon Crowley invented those. And then that, that doesn't go well. For that him. was the wrong thing to say to Hester.
0: He does not like Crowley. And we've said that about we've said this about everyone already in this show, but Ned Denne- Dennehy who plays Haster is just so fun. He is so, he does such a great
1: job. He does. So now we are five hours and 48 minutes until the end of the world. We're getting there. And we're back in Jasmine cottage where Anathema,
0: who's standing in her kitchen, hears Adam shout, Anathema, we found a man. (laughs) (laughs) They, they have brought their car crash victim to her house for healing.
1: And our our girl Anathema is no nonsense. Mm -hmm. Like bring him on and I'm ready get him upstairs let's and go pepper is watching her like this is who i want to be one day oh yeah she would be a powerful witch she would
0: Ooh. what are the other kids doing uh the other kids are discussing with anathema how it's like it's almost like you were expecting him to show up they're kind of going through this monologue or dialogue in the background anathema's like yeah i was hoping he wouldn't because maybe that would mean the beast isn't real and they were like what are you talking about? And she kind of catches herself. She's like, oh, nothing, nothing you kids need to worry about. Hey, you want to stay for lunch? And Wensley pipes up and he's, oh, I have a lunch at home, but thank you. And they're kind of doing their own thing. In the foreground, we see Adam, who has caught sight of a poster Anathema has hanging on the wall of Satan.
1: I think it's actually the tarot
0: card, the, the devil. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Interesting. That would make sense. But it's of um, the devil and he is Adam cannot take his eyes off of this thing. And we hear whispers rising around him. Really? And they are louder and more clear than they have ever been. Really into metal music.
1: Adam is like, Did I say you can leave? And everyone's like, Woo.
0: Yeah, because they, they go to leave like to go get lunch. And I think it's Pepper that's like, hey Adam, are you coming? And
1: he he's disres-
0: he feels very disrespected.
1: Yeah, and then um, Pepper, Wensleydale, and um, Brian are walking through the woods together discussing Adam's strange behavior. They, yeah, they kind of say, like, I think it's Brian that is like,
0: can I say something stupid without you guys telling me it's stupid? He's like, I was kind of afraid Adam wouldn't let us go. And I would just like to throw in here like that you really see here that these are just kids. They're 11-year-old children. And this, we've seen up to this point, it's, oh, they're playing games. And it's like, it's it's all this kind of childhood imagery. But when push comes to stuff, shove, no, these are just babies, essentially.
1: And they're scared. It's scary stuff. It is. And then we see Adam just kind of like standing there. And it's so creepy. This is like another yes. um, omen parallel. Yeah. But before we continue with more of those, we're going to jump back to the moment of glory that everyone thinks is about to happen so we're in Megiddo we are back with the American ambassador Mm -hmm. his son and his very confused wife who doesn't know like what they're doing there or why she's like is this because I called the president's wife a floozy
0: uh yeah she's very much not understanding she's asking all these questions like why are we here and that's why she says, like, is
1: this because I called the president's wife? And then we're introduced to Professor Haster Lavista, <laughs> who is an archaeologist ready to teach the darlings about the Assyrian kings. And he's really, really ready to meet young warlock. It's creepy.
0: Uh, yeah, I would just like to throw out there. I love how this kid is just aggressively rude. To this random dude who looks like he crawled out of a grave. Like he looks terrifying. He does. And both of his parents are just standing there. This child looks at this man who's like, I've heard a lot about you. And he goes, you smell like poo. And definitely. This, definitely raised by Crowley. Yes. And his parents are just like, that's fine. <laughs> they don't say a word to him. But anyway, as we're moving on here. Um, status starts discussing about how, oh, the Assyrian kings just fascinate me and Haster's not paying any attention and he gets very upset because he realizes Warlock doesn't have
1: a dog with him.
0: Something's missing here. And I also want to point out that, like,
1: good on Mr. Dowling for doing his, his homework. He understood the assignment. He did. I want to hear more about the Assyrian kings. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So the thing, the idea kind of occurs and kind of hits Pastor in the brain. Mm-hmm. Wrong boy. He is
0: very upset about that. And once again, I would just like to point out Warlock's parents. What are you guys doing? There is a corpse man yelling yeah. in your oh, child's man. face, asking if he hears voices. <laughs> and then your child is blatantly rude to the scary man again. And he gets so angry that he starts biting his own finger to the point where it bleeds. And you're just standing there. Get your child out
1: of there. What are you doing? You thought things were weird. <laughs> just wait, because we get to what is. I know I said the alien scene was weird, but like this just gets it gets it, it's more. Yeah, it's just <laughs> this is just such a weird. I always forget about the scene until we hop on it, and I'm like, what's going on? It's yeah, it's a fever dream. It's a fever dream. What's going on in this fever dream? Crowley is in a movie theater watching
0: this very yeah. odd. Claymation. You're asking the wrong person. (laughs) It's a claymation bunny cartoon where they're just hopping around and like humming happy music, happy happy little music. When suddenly, Hot Haster, as he is prone to do, pops up on the screen in front of Crowley, and he is mad as a hornet.
1: And Crowley just kind of takes his popcorn and just nope. Nope.
0: Neil did a cameo here, where you really can't see him very well unless you're looking for him. I don't think you see
1: him from the front. No, at all. you have to know it's him to know it's who knows him. Yeah, it's from the back, but he is not um, that. We know the back of Neil's head. It's just I, I. read I read that somewhere that it was him, and I'm like, oh, it is. Yeah, yeah.
0: He, I think he's supposed to be um, an unhoused person that has kind of taken refuge in this movie theater. I'm trying to say that. But.
1: So that's that's just a weird scene. I don't remember if it was in the book at all. I don't. Uh, no, I think when they realized
0: what happened with the antichrist mix-up in the book, they came after him. I think it was through his personal TV mm-hmm. in the I remember him turning the TV off as they were speaking, but the the voices kept That's going. That's right, yeah.
1: So anyways, Crowley is nope, and he takes his popcorn with him. He does. So, I would too. He's planning his next move, and then we're back to anathema and congratulations newt you found a witch you sure did or an occultist anyways (laughs) and newt has finally woken up in jasmine cottage and anathema
0: already knows who he is but he's not actually a witch finder because witches aren't real surprise (laughs) and she says i'm anathema device
1: I really am a witch. (laughs) The scene is basically just Anathema catching up Newt on how the two of them are connected, who Agnes Nutter was, Mm -hmm. the current situation as it stands, and the end of the world is nigh. This actually is... This scene does a good job of like... Because we're we're four episodes in, right? Mm -hmm. A good job of catching up and kind of re-summarizing everything to the listener. So the family connections are shared. It's kind of funny how those things line up. And Anathema is not pulling any punches. She is like... Assertive and, like, to the point, like, this is what's going to happen next, so, like, buckle up, friend.
0: Yeah, she does not have time to waste being gentle. She's like, yeah, the end of the world's happening in, like, three hours, so we gotta get going here. Uh, And uh, good job, Newt, though, because he connected the dots to figure out who the Antichrist is. He reads the following prophecy, Where the hog's back ends, the young beast will take the world, and Adam's line will end in fire and darkness. He connects hogs back tadfield adam surprise oh my gosh the antichrist is adam yep anathema <laughs> really does not like this discovery she is not she is shocked well, like, I, oh god I, I was just gonna say she's like there he's the sweetest kid
1: in the village how could this be possible yeah it, it, it i think it throws her off kilter a little bit big time yeah we're back with adam and he is having his classic like villain montalog slash existential <laughs> crisis. Yeah. And he's trapping his friends into it. I'm honestly not sure how much of it he's doing on purpose. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how much of it is kind of, oh, it's almost like he's possessed by the power yeah. he has.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, we, we come in to this scene after seeing Pepper, Wensleydale and Brian walking by themselves and they come around the corner and Adam's just standing there staring at him. This was a couple scenes back now and now he is there, and he's like, "Come on, come with me." And they're kind of forced to come along with them with with him. And he's saying, like, it would just make more sense if the world just were to start all over again. There's all this environment going on. All the grown-ups are just ruining everything. And we should just make it all make it all go away. And it's like you're not yes, entirely
1: wrong. Yes, things are kind of not great. Like, that part does make sense. Adam's voice while he's doing this whole monologue is very, very deadpan, though. Mm-hmm. It's, like you said, he's almost, like, possessed. Mm-hmm. But there is,
0: I would like to point out, um, a, it almost reminds me of, like, religious imagery in here. If you look at the way this scene is shot, he's standing on a hill a little bit above his friends, and the camera angle is down lower than his face and pointed up at him, and there's a sun shining in the background. So it almost gives him a halo around his head, which you see in a lot of religious imagery and old master paintings very true so
1: anyway it's been a little while since we checked in with Aziraphale and Crowley together has been a minute and we get our first scene of them together after the bandstand scene Mm -hmm. he is really trying to protect Aziraphale he's like making one more attempt like he pulls up to the bookshop he's kind of following him in the Bentley which is a little weird but Mm -hmm. he's like get in the car angel I'm apologizing. Work with me I'm here. I'm apologizing. Come on, let's go. And Aziraphale goes, what? No. Learn that Aziraphale has made up his mind and he's decided to reach out to, air quotes, the right people and put a stop to everything. His trust in heaven, specifically God, mm-hmm. and altruism here really, really kind of hurt because he's still very much of, if I can just get my my information to the right people, this can all stop. Meanwhile, Crowley is like, hey. This isn't gonna stop, and they're coming after me. So, yeah, we need to go.
0: There, there. His quote is: "There are no right people. There's just God moving in mysterious ways and not talking to any of us." So, Azir admits, admits there's more to his plan. He's gonna talk to God directly about everything to get it sorted out.
1: And the random guy on the
0: street, because Crowley is like, like he gets frustrated, yeah. and he's angry, he storms like, off. I don't need you.
1: When I'm in the stars all by myself, I won't even think about you. (sighs) And then this random guy in the street's like, don't worry, mate, I've been there too.
0: (laughs) He's like, you're better off without
1: him. (laughs) So. It's nice of him.
0: Yeah, it is. But we follow Crowley back to his flat and he,
1: and he's desperate. It's time to activate plan I for insurance. The insurance here, I I guess we can say what it is, Mm -hmm. is the holy water that um, he got from his year fell in the 60s. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: It's hidden in his safe
1: behind the Mona Lisa. Yes. And Haster and Liger are here and, you know, crap's about to hit the fan. Mm -hmm. Um, And Crowley lives true to his doing it with style saying.
0: Yeah. So we kind of flash back and forth in this scene between Crowley, who is all decked out in this serious PPE gear, taking this holy water and pouring it into a bucket, and then resting the bucket on the top of a half-open door to his study. At the same time, Haster and Liger are creeping through the flat towards him.
1: And this this scene is probably the most demonic or mean thing we see Crowley do, mm-hmm. and it is self-preservation, 100%. Absolutely. So the two demons open his office door, and the bucket of holy water falls on Liger, and he is, like, it dissolves him. Yeah, Gross. The screaming. Um, In the book, Haster just kind of stands for a second.
0: In shock. Yeah, and then goes
1: for Crowley, as opposed to, like, the ten seconds straight of screaming. Even the subtitles say, like, continued shrieking. Yeah. Ned
0: Denity. You did great. But then he looks at, at Crowley, and he can't believe that Crowley has dissolved Liger with this holy water. He's like, that's low even for a demon, and he hadn't even done nothing to you. And I'm like, yet. Sir. Yeah, pretty much. Like Crowley says, Sir. You were going to. <laughs> so Crowley, who desperately just wants to be an action hero, grabs his plant mister off of his desk. And it this is plant mister is presumably filled with holy water. He points it at Haster, his foe. And like, I know this is supposed to be
1: very intense, but I find it hilarious. Oh,
0: it's it's very funny. Uh, so sadly, you know, Crowley's going through this whole thing. Like, do you feel lucky? And he's living out his... Yeah. James Bond dreams, and the water, the the spray mister leaks just a bit, and a drop of water hits Crowley's finger, giving the game away. It is not holy water. Basically, the plant mister goes poof as Haster, Haster, excuse
1: me, explodes it, and Crowley goes, uh-oh, but then the phone rings. And it is a zero fail. And um, Crowley gets, like, an A++ for thinking on his feet here. He picks up the phone. It's a zero fail mm-hmm. and very quickly he's like, "Hey, I can't talk. There's some old friends here." Like, I think he's trying to very subtly hint, "Hey, I am like up a creek without a paddle." Yeah,
0: yeah. And we get th- keep this scene in mind for later because it's a very quick scene. We get a quick pop over to a zero fail who's like on the phone. And he's like, "What?" And then he, we see some, we hear something happen in the background. Aziraphale drops the phone and looks over his shoulder like he's surprised by something, and then we go right back to Crowley.
1: Who is stalling and like talking out of his behind like a pro. <laughs> and I'm guessing the answering machine might have given this the idea, mm-hmm. but he starts this whole thing, this whole thing, just a ploy, to find out if Haster was trustworthy to lead the legions of the demons in the war. So he pulls out his mobile, I almost said mobile. <laughs> he pulls out his mobile phone to Air quotes, call the Dark Council, and then he says, "So long, sucker!" sticks his tongue out and goes through the phone line, he
0: jumps into the speaker essentially, and we're treated to a bit of a monologue by God explaining that countless man hours have been spent trying to answer the question, "How many angels can dance on the head of a pin?" Angels dance, demons don't. This is a whole like ten minute explanation. It is.
1: And we get these wonderful scenes where, like angels can't dance. Right? Yes, they do not dance with one exception. Aziraphale learned the gavotte <laughs> at some at, at a um a discreet gentleman's club in Victorian era. That had to be a fun place. Oh yeah, and and but demons can dance, but they can't dance well. So then we we get the whole scene of um Aziraphale dancing the gavotte, and then we get Crowley and. Haster and it's Haster and Liger. Yeah. Um, and they're in like 70s getup and they're like doing like a, a terrifying, horrible disco dance.
0: We need to put the behind the scenes of that. Oh we gosh. need to link it. There's it's a funny. It's,
1: it's funny. Oh, it's something else.
0: The short answer to the pin question is any amount of de- demons or angels or whomever can dance on the head of a pin. The only problem is the get big gaps between electrons that take up space, which is where Crowley is. And Haster
1: follows. Yes, they are flying down the telephone line. And Crowley has it pretty well timed to know how many rings until the answering machine takes over. Mm-hmm.
0: So the answer machine takes over. We see Crowley pop out of the answer machine. Is If you haven't picked up on it, he called himself, not the Dark Council. Haster doesn't get that lucky and gets stuck on the answer phone.
1: The scene ends with this giant, like, thunderstorm. And I'm really wondering if Crowley was just like, I'm going to be really dramatic. <laughs> Just yeet on out of here with this thunder. I did, the, I did the down click, not that anyone could see that. Sorry. I saw it. Thank you. <laughs> so now we're back to Aziraphale because, like, we saw part of what happened with him, but we're kind of like, question mark? What's going on here, bud? We're back in time. So we're, we're not exactly where we left off with Crowley. We're before the phone call. hmm So we see him wandering sadly back towards the bookshop, and then he's suddenly surrounded by Michael, Uriel, and Sandalfun. Mm-hmm. And they're such jerks. And, like, Ugh. he is visually nervous around them.
0: Yeah. They instantly start being really threatening, uh, saying, like, oh, you're a fallen angel consorting with the enemy. And they're not asking him for an explanation. They're not making
1: even the slightest attempt to hear his side of things. And he just, he doesn't have the confidence with stalling like Crowley does. He's right. just kind of stuttering and, like, terrified, it looks like. Yeah. And they make a, they make a comment, like, you know, don't think your boyfriend in the dark glasses will help you. He's in trouble, too. Yeah. He still has so much faith, though. Is it, a fail?
0: Right. And he makes a really good point here that I wanted to read off. This is a direct quote from the show. He said, uh, Michael says, it's time to choose sides. And he says, I've actually been giving that a lot of thought. The whole choosing sides thing. What I think is that there obviously has to be two sides. That's the whole point. So people can make choices. That's what being human means. Choices. But that's for them. Our job as angels should be to keep all this working so that they can make choices. And
1: Uriel goes, you think too much. And then um, Sandalfun ends up punching Aziraphale in the stomach and Uriel Uh, Uriel shoves him against the wall by his um, pals. He's terrified when he's pushed up the wall by them. Mm -hmm. Compared to in, in an earlier episode when Crowley is like, I'm not nice. Shoves him against a wall. And he's just, you know, when Crowley does it, he's like,
0: oh, okay. (laughs) He does not care, even in the slightest.
1: Well, and like you would think that he would be much more nervous in tight quarters with the demon, but he's Mm -hmm. much more nervous around the angels. Oh, yeah. Like, he looks genuinely scared. And then the scene ends with the sound of a distant trumpet, and the archangels, they zip back up to heaven. The apocalypse horn is something.
0: (laughs) And... Aziraphale looks back up at them and goes, you, you,
1: bad angels. The bad angels back up to heaven. Yeah. That and sounds like a, a Fallout Boy song title. <laughs> it does. And um, so Adam is continuing his apocalypse planning. Yes. We're back at the Themstone. Adam is still
0: essentially holding his friends hostage. And they are really, really distressed. Adam's talking about ending the world and murdering everyone. It's
1: scary stuff. And it's nuclear war was what he's talking about, which is lining up with what heaven was saying. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the kind of starting event. And pepper is
0: really putting her foot down. And she says this great quote, which is probably my second secondary quote of the week. She goes speaking as the mother of unborn generations, I'm against it. And, you know, Adam's talking about, like I said, he's going to take all these people out and, you know, kill all the people. And, Brian says something that just really gets to me and but he says, please let us go home. I want my mummy and my daddy. And that just oh mm-hmm.
1: that's yeah, shows how scared they are.
0: Yeah. And that's like you gotta think about like an I feel like an eleven year old boy is probably not gonna be as willing to be like mummy and daddy versus like, I want my mom, I want my dad. So to get him to that
1: point of fear, it's like oh. So we cut from them and we're back to anathema and newt. Anathema states that she's still not sure what to do about Adam, as Agnes doesn't say to stop him. Um, Newt basically thinks that she is losing it a little bit for listening to a century's dead witch. Right. Anathema continues to
0: say that the prophecies don't really go on to say what to do about Adam. She says they go on about stupid stuff about you and me and you don't want to know. She's not thrilled. (laughs) Uh, But they she kind of makes the decision Hogback Lane isn't far from here. Let's go. We're gonna go check it out. As soon as they step out the door, an actual tornado sweeps them into the air, and they have to grab hold of the door frame. And I think Nuke grabs a hold of her her hand to keep from being literally blown away.
1: And after that lets up, she's like, "Oh yeah, that's right. That's one of the prophecies." Yeah, she's like, <laughs> "Like let's 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 go hide under the bed."
0: They get back inside and the wind starts to pick back up. The window gets blown out and Newt goes, get under the bed. And I mean, they're just doing anything to get, I mean, they're literally in the path of a tornado. So.
1: And Newt's like, I'm going to die. And there's so many things I haven't done. He goes on to things like rob a bank, eating Thai food. I like how that's the first thing that he's like,
0: my life's about to end and I've never even, I've never even
1: committed a felony. (laughs) What? (laughs) And then um, there's a prophecy of reach out to one another. And
0: they smooch. We'll put it that way. Um, And we kind of fade away to things perhaps getting a little spicy in a tornado under a bed. To Shadwell in his apartment, and he is very worried about Newt. He's really upset that he let Newt go off alone because what if
1: something happens to him? Our um, Madam Tracy comes over and is like, oh, I'm sure he's fine. Yeah. And then he calls her, I don't know. Some It's
0: funny because he doesn't even think about it. He's just like, eh, get away from me, you. And it's some insult. Yeah, (laughs) And she's like, you say the nicest things. The whole reason I think that he's partially worried about Newt as... Um, in the background of this scene, Shadwell has a giant map on his wall that kind—it's of, I guess it's a map of England. I think so. And he put a pin on the map where Newt was, so in Tadfield. And the pin keeps not just falling out of the wall, but shooting out of the wall. And then it starts smoking when he forces the pin back inside the wall. You know, they're they're kind of chatting, and Madame Tracy's like, "Well, there's a train to Tadfield. It's okay. He'll be all right." And you can get there and you know she's just trying to be a sweet lady um but in the meantime while all this is happening it's kind of funny shadwell is talking about i've sent him into the jaws of doom and we kind of get a quick flash to newton anathema doing certain things that having it's adult very time. having adult time it's very pg we don't actually see anything but you get the gist so it's just kind of like it's like, they could be doing all manner of things to him. And it's
1: like, ah, okay, all right. And then on his map, it kind of catches fire on Tadfield.
0: Yes. And he throws his tea at it to put it out. He basically, he decides he's going to go to Aziraphale's bookshop to borrow money from him to get to Tadfield. is yep. essentially how this scene wraps up. And meanwhile, Adam is continuing to lose his cool. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a bunch of short little scenes to wrap up here. Adam, as Bree said, is continuing to just lose his mind. He's got his friends trapped with him. The wind is rising around him. He's yelling. His eyes are starting to glow. And his friends are begging him to let them go. We, you have to stop it. You're being stupid. And he starts yelling, shut up, shut up. I need all of you to stop talking. Shut up. And all of them's mouths disappear.
1: There's kind of peril going on there. Adam is really fighting with his own conscience mm-hmm. versus, like, the almost, like, Antichrist possession he's dealing with. Yeah. Then we flip over to Aziraphale. He's in his bookshop. He is. And he is trying to get to the higher authority. Mm-hmm. Um. So he has a... like. I guess a summoning circle, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's under a rug in the bookshop. It's kind of in the middle, pretty much. Yeah. And so he gets candles out, lights them, calls out to God. Meanwhile, Shadwell is kind of watching this from outside.
0: Yeah. We see Aziraphale light the portal. He's puts his hands together like he's praying and says, is there anyone there? And Shadwell actually knocks on the door. Or, well, we don't know it's Shadwell. Well, we no, I'm sorry. We as the audience know it it is it's Shadwell. Yeah. Um, Aziraphale doesn't notice and he just shouts over, we're closed. And he goes back to the circle and he's like, I'm willing to take this all the way to the top. I really need to talk to someone. And the circle starts to glow. It's very,
1: very pretty. Mm-hmm. And he gets a hold of um, the Metatron. Yes. Which we mentioned before is the only other angel that is in the book. So he called you know, he's talking to the Metatron and he is like basically begging for the war to stop. Mm-hmm. So he he's trying really hard to keep it together. Um, but you can like hear his voice breaking. He's starting to really have a hard time with just what's going on. He's mm-hmm. so polite. He's just desperate. Yeah, he's desperate. He's like just trying to get some kind of help and he's shut down basically. Right. And the Metatron's like, I expect you up here, like ASAP.
0: Yeah. This whole scene, He the Metatron says the same thing that Gabriel did, you know, and the Met- Metatron goes, yeah, great, well done. Uh, the point's not to avoid the war, the point's to win it. So, and I, I love this scene, how it's filmed. And again, this is where I was going to say, it goes back to Crowley's scene when he's trying to run away and he's got the astronomy book out and he's saying to God, like, only only ever ask questions? Tell me your plan. This scene... I think it's it's they did something with the lighting and the camera angles and um, potentially like the makeup. (laughs) Michael Sheen almost looks like a child and they, they film like looking down on his face as he's gazing up at the Metatron. And again, you get this image of this is a child begging their parent for help or for an answer to a question that they just desperately need to solve, a problem that they need to solve, and just getting...
1: Shut down. Shut down, yeah. I didn't think of that before, especially, like, the angle looking down, because it's right ways, yeah. Right, So, of course, Matron is like, nope, That's and... gonna happen. But he'll leave the circle opal- open so that
0: Aziraphale can join.
1: was like, well, that didn't work. Yeah. It's like, I have some things to repair. Okay, whatever. Then we kind of see that, well, Shadwell's been listening in at the letterbox yeah and, and, and he <laughs> basically saw what happened and he's like oh my god witchcraft yeah so he <laughs> one track mind so he picks the lock to get in which maybe put a ward for that and their exchange is really funny because aziraphale is more like this this is this sucks but like you need to not get near the circle don't get near it yeah, yeah. bad things will happen shad one of the part of the scene that the exchange of shadwell is like Seducing, He's like, you know, you're seducing women with your evil ways. And Aziraphale's like, I think you have the wrong shop. <laughs> and Shadwell's like, you are possessed by a demon. And Aziraphale's like, uh...
0: It's like, I wish I were possessed
1: by a demon. <laughs> and so he's... Just trying to, like, he's trying to be polite, too, which is hilarious.
0: He's, yeah. Because this man breaks into a shop. And he's just like, listen, I get it. I get it. I know you're stressed. Stay away from the circle. Stay away from the circle. So, and he's getting more and more wound up. So then he, um, Shadwell, picks up a bell and a book. And it's the prophecies. And it's the prophecies book, yeah. And he he tosses it to the side, which I think that becomes important later, but I'm not going
1: to say any more about that now. is trying really hard to keep him away from the circle. And then he accidentally steps in it. And the book goes into this little, like, this little thing about it, the, the show doesn't, that Aziraphale as a rule doesn't swear. And this is, like, one of his first swears in 6,000 years. And it is the F-bomb. He, then, because c- he looks at nice, like Ugh. and then he, he you know, gets lifted up, and then he gets um, discorporated.
0: As he is returned to heaven. But his body just kind of goes, pew, like a like a glitter-filled balloon.
1: So... We end with Shadwell thinking that he, like, blew up Aziraphale by pointing his finger at him. So he's looking looking
0: at his finger. Because, yes, during all this while Aziraphale is getting riled up and, like, please stay away from the circle. Please stay away from the circle. Shadwell is muttering, like, I don't even know what he's... He's muttering a bunch of nonsense about, like, you will go back to hell and return no more. And he ends by pointing his finger at Aziraphale and that happens to be when he goes poof.
1: And um, Shadwell is like, ah! Like, he's having, like, a crisis of... I can't believe I just did, did that. that! So he, like, runs out of the shop. Slams the door. A candle falls over.
0: And lights up a stack of paper right next to it.
1: In an antique bookshop, mostly made of wood. And dust. And that's where we
0: close out, I think. Yep, and that is the cliffhanger we are left on for... Episode four of Good Omens.
1: Two episodes left.
0: What what will our heroes do? I
1: know.
0: And I love the the end credits for this. Uh the music is the is the theme, but it's circus-y sounding. Oh it is,
1: yeah. And it's fun because this whole episode is
0: just a circus. It is.
1: <laughs> Adam is starting to come into his powers. Big time. At this point, kind of being swayed into destroying the world. Mm-hmm. But we can see he's fighting it a little bit. Yes. Um, his friends are horrified. <laughs> Uh, His dog is horrified. Yeah, too. Anathema and Newt have met. They have, as you said, closed the rift between their families. (laughs) So to speak. So those major players are in Tadfield. Shadwell is still in London. Mm -hmm. Um, Crowley is on the run from Hell. Aziraphale has been discorporated. Heaven and Hell are still on schedule for the apocalypse. All right, so our question of the week is, if you could meet with someone from Atlantis whether it is the more traditional version or the more sci-fi version, what would you ask them?
0: How is it to live underwater? I think would be my question, because I would be so stressed out by living underwater. I would have to know more, like, is this like a siren situation? Uh, it, are you like people? Or do you live like in the in the um, animated movie Atlantis? They're kind of in. One. I love that movie. They're kind of in like a bubble that protects them from being, you know, drowned. Is this how how does this work? I need to know because I feel like I would be stressed out beyond all reason if I had to be under the- forced under a bubble in the water.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because you know, oh. if it is, if, if it is, you know, the people that sunk with it, then they might have some really cool insights onto what the world was like a couple of thousand years ago. Right. But if it's generations, I'd be interested in like what are your beliefs? What are your like anthropology type things. Yeah. Oh, I like that. My my quote was um and a thousand sushi dinners cried out for vengeance. But what was yours?
0: I believe I'm gonna stick with Shadwell's There'll be no time for light reading when you're under demonic attack, Laddie. (laughs) We should get that (laughs)
1: written in here somewhere. (laughs) Um all right. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, I'm Christiana. And I'm Bree, And we will see you in the next episode. But until then, choose your, your faces wisely. wisely.